Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 80. Jamie won in a storm of swords, and an intro to Jamie Lannister. (laughs) I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet, Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, LizaNarberGold.com. And I am Eliana, another one of your hosts. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, on the Maester Monthly Podcast, maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Yes, maybe. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just know her as one of your other hosts. We don't know. <laughs> there I are no know. hosts like me. Only me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are starting Jamie Lannister. This is an exciting feat. You really got to hand it to us. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, I don't know, that joke was just golden. <laughs> I'm proud of us. We, we haven't even cracked into this episode yet, and here we are. <laughs> uh, but before we talk about this episode, let's talk about some stuff that's come out recently. This past January, we had a we had a Patreon episode. So many episodes, they make oh you record God. and record. They actually do. Actually, no <gasps> one does. We do. We make... <laughs> We did make ourselves do this. We did this to ourselves. Patrons $5 and up get special episodes every single month on a very special topic. This past month, we talked about the Maiden Vault from A Song of Ice and Fire. So it was in A Song of Ice and Fire themed episode. This episode coming out in February, uh, it's going to be special and we're not going to announce it this week, but... Hang tight, patrons. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. February will be interesting in terms of things. First of all, we are starting the month off, of course, with a new POV. And we have some fun stuff planned for this kickoff. Not not for today. Just in general, for Jamie. Not for today. <laughs> and not next week. Not next week not either. Not next week. But it could be yeah. the third week. Anyways, so... Stay tuned. Maybe you'll hear about it next week on Jamie too. But before we do all that, let's talk about some emails and tweets of notes, some of which will have to do with Jamie Lannister. Never heard of him. We did get an email from our friend Julie who said, Hello, lovelies. I was revisiting Wolf Hall, bring up the bodies in preparation for the final book, and something reminded me of you talking about the Ned. One of the characters refers to Henry VIII as the Tudor. Also in Outlander, the Laird of Clan Chief is repeatedly referred to as the Mackenzie. So it could be that the calling the head of a family like a king or lord, the or the, was a mark of respect and or a way to be, to be clear you're talking about the head of the family. It's just a guess, but the fact that George has the flint as well leads me to think at least in literature it's a thing and possibly in history too. Julie also attached a photo of her writing buddy, Pancho or Pancho, not sure. He's not great on ideas, but he does keep her arms warm. Love to all, especially the cats. Wow. Especially the cats? Especially the cats. Like, specifically especially. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. Meow. She likes the executive producers. They are. Well, one of them is. The other's the intern. Yeah, Jake's an intern because I fired him. Oh, I thought it was because of the nepotism prevalent in the cat <laughs> in this catastrophe. Email. I feel like I want to say that one time I read something on Reddit that said that yes, this was an actual dialectical thing. 
that this was an actual thing within the English dialect uh, in some areas, but, you know, I'm going to be real. I might have many years ago and forgotten it, but I think it's a good catch and a good connection with some of the other fiction. I know that George R. R. Martin has spoken highly of Diana Gabaldon's uh, The um, Outlander series and follows it. Every now and then he posts about it on his blog. And you know what? I've actually just started watching Outlander recently. Uh, I'm still only on the first season. I know a few of the other A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit mods are really into it, such as Isabel, Jen, and Angry Biologist. But hmm. um, you know what? I have just started. It's it's fun. It's very dramatic. Yeah. And it's I've heard that. I haven't read it I, um, or watched it. I'd like to read it, but... I've heard mixed reviews. It really shows you how underutilized Ed Neer Tully's actor is, though, in Game of oh, Thrones. Oh, in Game of Thrones, yeah, he plays absolutely. A big I've role. seen him in a couple things. Yeah, he's turns out is a very flexible actor. So, thank you so much, Julie. Also, Poncho. You know, before I opened up the photo, I thought Poncho was going to be a cat because of the the shout out to the cats. But Poncho is, I think, a small fox like panda, red panda like looking dog. That's huh. how I would describe Poncho. How about you? I would describe Poncho as a tiny floof with eyeballs and a walnut for a brain. We don't know that. I just want to hug him. Yes, he does seem very huggable, though. And I mean, walnuts look like brains, to be fair. That's true. <laughs> and remember, so it's not insulting it just happens to be a walnut i just remembered the line from jason mendoza like oh the doctor says that my brain's super smooth <laughs> smoothest brain he's ever seen i was like oh god <laughs> <laughs> okay so we got another email from our friend pete it says hiya ggc i have had some ideas on the corrosive effects of o's as it applies to the kingsguard septons the order of maesters and the night's watch specifically that of compulsory celibacy in which it shames or criminalizes normal human nature and drives as payment to serve the realm for a term of life and in some cases on pain of death the hypocrisy here is that high lords and kings father bastards all over the kingdom except for doran and it's the onus and the onus is placed on bastards not the father practices like Prima Nocta, or Lord's Right of the First Night, an ancestral polygamy by the king illustrates that the whole of feudal society is corrupt to its core. So in a world like this, Jamie Lannister was right when he said, it was the white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around. In a crazy world like that, choosing to continue his teenage sexual fumbling with his twin sister into adulthood has a in for a penny, in for a pound cost to it as he feels he can only die once for his illicit passion if found out anywho those are my thoughts on it thanks for reading pete yep thank you so much pete for sending us an email i think it's been a couple weeks since we got a pete email so that was good uh absolutely on all of this in fact i thought of something new while you just read this around eliana of how a lot of uh you and i have been talking about fire and blood off the record a lot lately not just for this we're always talking about fire and blood what am i talking about but we were talking about Fire and Blood and, you know, all these Targaryen sisters, a lot of them just got chosen to marry their brother, right? They didn't really have a say in it. It was, you are going to do this because it's what we do. Uh, and a lot of them would never think of it otherwise. They wouldn't think of having another partner. And some of them obviously would think very much so of having another partner, not 
someone blood related to them. So it's such an interesting concept that Jamie and Cersei come to love each other toxically speaking. Um, they choose it, you know, instead of uh, the whole Targaryen bound together by dragon and fire and blood and whatever. So interesting thought. Uh, and we see a lot of what you're talking about with kind of that penal colony situation going on with John, which we just transferred out of and we're transitioning into this POV. No man has been able to give the Night's Watch a good rule because the Night's Watch is set up to fail, right? It's a land for outcasts. It's the last stop for people in society. And it very much so shows in the way that we see King's Landing treat with them and the way that the Lannister outrider lackeys attack Yorin's group as well. And as Jamie learned when he was younger, there was really no right way to do his job. He was asked to do inconsistent and corrupt things all of the time and to turn his head when other and to turn his head when his brothers did them as well. Yeah. Um I thought yeah, I thought this was a, a good email and really sets the tone for much of what we're going to be discussing in this chapter and the rest of Jamie's. And like you said, the inconsistency of all of these oaths with one another. I do think like the idea of swearing yourself to celibacy. I understand the the logic behind it for these orders right like their logic behind it is you choose to do so because you are dedicating your life to something and also so that you won't have any competing like loyalties yeah loyalties um and and i get it but at the same time as you pointed out like the night's watch i mean it's pretty it's pretty compulsory right like it many people don't get that choice it's it's fucked that it's not just the rule of law forcing itself upon people in that way it's doing so in a way that's controlling bodies and procreation and i think it's interesting that a lot of these that we get here kind of flips the script a little and that it's forcing it's it's controlling for the most part male sexuality as opposed to female sexuality right and the difference of course is people get sent to the Night's Watch, where the King's Guard is set up as this prestigious Order of Knights, but it turns out once you enter the Order of Knights, mm-hmm. um, they aren't really prestigious, right? At one point, they were shiny and beautiful, and now they're awful. They beat children now. Uh, they're garbage. They're not shiny and beautiful, and it's like you get inducted into the Secret Order, and the Secret Order's behavioral past in history has become that this is the norm. Yeah, and I think it's like that for the maesters too. Like, part of the reason why is because it's set up so that every, like, home will have a maesterate that will be loyal to that family. Though, as we've seen, and especially as Barbara Dustin points out in the Theon chapters, like, doesn't always work like that. And also, like, at the same time, like, did they all need to do that? Like, there are many maesters who stay in the Citadel. And I'm just saying, you can be a fucking librarian or teacher without having to give up having a family. It's really about dehumanizing and removing that humanity, right? Like, how do humans connect with each other? Um, This may be a fantasy book, but they are still technically humans, right? They're not aliens. So how do humans connect? They connect through other humans. And when you remove that humanity, they especially the king guard, they're being desensitized, right? You have to protect the king. Do whatever the king says, no matter what. And some of those things that the king can say to do can be 
pretty awful and traumatic. And if you don't go away inside, like we hear uh, Jamie, you know, think on, uh, if you don't go away inside, you won't survive them. I would be really interested to see Jamie Lannister meet any of the Unsullied or perhaps even Ario Hota if that ever happens, because the extreme case of what happens with the Kingsguard, as you pointed out, like in terms of this dehumanization pro- process or the uh, the attempt to do so, we see it with characters like Ario, who has who has been castrated, as well as the Unsullied, like. They have. They didn't choose that for themselves either, and they don't get to take oaths, right? This that control of sexuality is forced upon them. And yeah, this was very much a choice. Yeah, and you end up seeing, especially in Danny's chapters within the same book, that forced, like that they themselves also. It seems like maybe they go inside, maybe not. But like they must, right? They're they're forced to endure so much horror, like from an early age, and for the king, like from an early age. Yeah, there's something about turning that switch off of your humanity um, that I feel like there's almost something in there of the others in the north and uh, the king's guard having to turn their humanity off to fight for the king. I mean, it's a, it's a state of being another, of being a zombie. Yeah, and, and it's not that the uh, those like the Unsullied, right, and Aryo, we see Aryo has so many emotions, and that's the point, right? Within each of the Unsullied, they too have all of these thoughts and things that they think, and maybe those are there more when they're no longer in Astapor and they're sent into homes, like we see at the beginning of A Game of Thrones. Illyrio Mopatis has some Unsullied, even though he's not supposed to, in Pentos. And for them, it's not that they've turned off their community. It's been forcibly taken from them. And that's more horrific. And it's interesting to see that. It'll be interesting to contextualize that as they come to Westeros and what those who have taken that choice will think of it. And especially what they will think of it. I mean, it's a shame that George says that we won't get any associate POVs, which may or may not be true. Technically, Melisandre might be one right and i don't know well there's lots more to delve in again thank you pete for that email we have a lot to get into in this episode i think we're going to talk more about some of those points as we expand through but first i'd like to hit our intro lightning round which isn't going to be like our normal lightning rounds we are starting a new point of view we're starting jamie so we have to go over of course a little bit of history Sir Jaime Lannister was twin to Queen Cersei, tall and golden, with flashing green eyes and a smile that cut like a knife. He wore crimson silk, high black boots, a black satin cloak. On the breast of his tunic, the lion of his house was embroidered in gold thread, roaring its defiance. They called him the Lion of Lannister to his face and whispered Kingslayer behind his back. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself as the man passed. I thought you were done with John voices. So funny. Everyone can have John as a treat. <laughs> a little John as a treat. As a treat. <sighs> yes. So this is one of the first like, really extensive looks that we get 
at Jamie at the start of a Game of Thrones because, uh, as you all know, Jamie, pretty important to the very beginning of the Song of Ice and series, of the Song of Ice and Fire series. Like that's what I've been told. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, we get him in the very beginning, some of the first chapters. Uh, and he does get his little info dump when we start those chapters. It's interesting that he pops up in John's POV and John thinks that Jamie is what a cane looked like when he arrived at Winterfell. You know, we get we get a little hesitation from Ned. We'll get to that. Um, but soon, soon, you know, he throws Bran out of a window to improve his health after Bran sees him <laughs> doing some really weird wrestling with his twin sister, Cersei. Sets off a whole chain of events. You might know it. It's called A Song of Ice and Fire. It's a whole thing. I imagine there's like Jamie Lannister holding Bran out the window. Record scratch. You might be wondering how I got here. <laughs> Sometimes I think about Jamie like... Ah, oh, yeah, it's that one kid. Um, looks down at hand at smudged name Bradley. <laughs> and we're about to talk about how Jamie got here. Uh, Bradley. Anyway, so we're gonna back up a bit, um, because a lot, a lot has gotten us to this point, and a lot more, you know, happens between the beginning of Jamie's life. And the whole throwing kids out of windows part of it. Yeah, we're going to unravel a lot of it throughout this chapter and the next couple chapters to come. Of course, we have the bathhouse eventually, so y'all know it gets juicy there. But I want to go even farther back than that to start with Jamie to the 1993 pitch letter that George had written. There are two things I want to talk about from the pitch letter that involve Jamie. The first thing is... All the North will be inflamed by war. Rob will win several splendid victories and maim Joffrey Baratheon on the battlefield, but in the end, he will not be able to stand against Jaime and Tyrion Lannister and their allies. Rob Stark will die in battle and Tyrion Lannister will besiege and burn Winterfell. So some of that stayed true, right? And we'll talk about that very soon. But then there's a second part from the 1993 pitch letter. Tyrion Lannister will continue to travel, plot, and play the Game of Thrones, finally removing his nephew Joffrey in disgust at the Boy King's brutality. Jaime Lannister will follow Joffrey on the throne of the Seven Kingdoms by the simple expedient of killing everyone ahead of him in the line of secession and blaming his brother Tyrion for the murders. Whoa. Yeah. Little, little 180. A lot of 180. I mean, so... It's interesting that he inherits, right, what was going to be Joffrey's injury. And now I kind of wonder, were we going to get, like, more of a humanization, like, to Joffrey? Is that what that means? Yeah, because he was going to... Well, I mean, not just that. In this version and in this original outline, Sansa ended up staying with Joffrey, right? And having mm. babies and being just, like, a married prisoner forever. Uh, there's a lot different here, and even more is Jamie's not in the King's Guard in this version, obviously. I don't think we know that he wasn't entirely, but like, yeah, I think it might have been because part of some of the chapters were already written, right? Like the first thirteen chapters of a Game of Thrones were written and sent along with this letter, if I'm not mistaken. So he would that would have probably already been established, but if he had it in there, I mean, like, there's it's it's interesting because when you read a Game of Thrones. There's a lot that still feels like artifacts of what was in the 1993 letter, right? Oh, There's yeah. so much, including that John line, right, of how Jamie looked 
the way that he imagines a king would look. It feels very much like foreshadowing that was eventually thrown away. But it's still interesting to uh, analyze within the context of what we actually get. Yeah, and it seems likely the transformation of this that we're seeing now, Cersei has really replaced Jaime in that latter plot in the current storyline. One by one, everyone ahead of her keeps dying, and she will probably assert herself or try to assert herself on the throne at some point. But she's even blaming Tyrion for all these deaths, even though she actually believes he's doing them. She's not wrong about one of them. Yeah, just one though. Only one. Um, Yeah, I do feel that he switched Tyrion, not Tyrion. I do feel like he might have made the choice. I don't know if he exactly like completely swapped Cersei and Jaime's storylines. I think he did in the sense that she's now got the throne storyline. I don't know if like Cersei was going to get more of that... um, a more sympathetic and humanizing storyline and we do get her pov but i i kind of sometimes think he was going to do that right especially with the way that you see ned and cersei's interaction play out yeah she's nothing the but the very uh meek housewifey and then suddenly he's all like whoa no there's so much fire in her eyes and you suddenly see it whoa though she's real angry so I, yeah that bitch would kill anyone and blame Tyrion, I guess. But <laughs> if we want to roll the clock forward a little bit, we can stop at 266 AC, which is where Jaime was born at Casterly Rock to Joanna and Tywin Lannister. After his twin sister Cersei came out first, he came out clutching her foot, in fact. Some of the traits they inherited are that they did not plan to have to pay to change their last name on oh their God. marriage certificates, just like their parents, Joanna and Tywin. It's so practical. <laughs> I do think, and we'll probably talk about this more maybe in like Cersei's chapters one day, you know, the Valencar prophecy. I, I think I've touched on this before, maybe somewhere of him clutching her foot, right, points to the possibility of Jamie being the Valencari, it feels very much like an Achilles heel reference. Absolutely. And it is for both of them, truly. Yeah. But true, true. It really is. Uh, especially considering that's the hand. <laughs> wow. We'll get to that. Ares sent them a gift of gold uh, that weighed as much as the twins and said, by the way, since I sent this money gifting you about these twins, now you have to bring them to court when you're physically able to do so. Ha ha. Uh, you guys are basically my political friend hostages. That's a thing. Yeah. Frenemies. Whether or not they went is up in the air, but they did go in 272 AC. I could see Tywin being like, we're not leaving for at least 10 fortnights. Yeah. He's like, oh, hang on, hang on. Joanna, Joanna's calling for some paid leave right now. Uh, we have rights. As children, Jamie and Cersei, as we know, especially from Cersei's POV, would swap places and clothes. It's mostly Cersei dressing up as Jamie, though, being confused for him. And then they also started to partake in sexual experimentation with each other. Interesting. They got caught, and their mother threatened to tell their father if they didn't stop. She put their bedrooms on opposite sides of the castle to help stop this. But, you know, unfortunately, she died about like a year, maybe less than later, in 273 AC. So, you know, they were like, you know, what's two different sides of the castle? That's not gonna stop us. <sighs> and then they got like a shitty consolation, which was Tyrion. Yeah, they got a younger brother at the same time as, you know, they lost the person who was stopping them from committing incest all the time. Whatever. My mom died and all I got was laid in this horrible brother. Oh my god! so you know how 
Tywin tried to marry Cersei off to Rhaegar. It was like the biggest goal, the biggest dream, right? He also tried to get Jaime in as Rhaegar's squire, but that didn't work. So Jaime ended up squiring with Lord Sumner at Cray at Craycall. When they were twelve, Cersei was summoned to go to King's Landing with Tywin, and then Jaime won his first melee at age thirteen. For a lot of Jaime's youth, right? So he was in the Riverlands squiring. And Lord Hostertully had this great idea of betrothing Liza and Jamie. This is actually legitimately a good idea. Uh, but Jamie was more interested in listening to Sir Brendan Blackfish Tully's war stories. He's like, wow, he's so cool. He's the great, my greatest hero ever. Sports, sports. To be honest, I mean, like, yeah, I said, it's not a bad idea if Jamie and Liza had been betrothed and married. Maybe that would have been better for both of them. I think you're not wrong. Could have been better for the realm, honestly. For many people, in fact. Um, but anyways. But Jamie wasn't going to have that because he found out about all this from Cersei, who convinced him to join the Kingsguard so that he wouldn't have to marry any stupid girl. He could keep fucking her all the time, be near her always, and they'll just hang out at King's Landing all the time because she's like, look, I'm going to cuck Rhaegar and we'll still be together. She made her case by coming to him at an inn, dressed as a serving girl. And there's, of course, the quote, By morning, Casterly Rock seemed a small price to pay to be near her always. So, he does it. He gives up his entire claim. And, hey, in the serving girl outfit, tries that move on Ned. On the Ned, sorry. Yeah. You know, she's like, it worked once. Maybe it'll work again. But, <laughs> you know, hang on. Before we get there, we're going to come back. Let's come back to Jamie's adolescence. A lot of things happen. So between all of that happening, Jamie actually joined Craycall, uh, Lord Craycall, in fighting the Kingswood Brotherhood. He saved him from Big Belly Ben in The Smiling Knight. And because of this, Arthur Dane himself knighted Jamie at age 15. That's like really big. A huge deal in Westeros. Like, that's, I don't know, the biggest sports star knighting you. Yeah. Arthur with the magical sword is like superhero swordsman of old. He is Jamie's hero. This is the dream come true for Jamie. He thinks he's finally living his dream out. He's a knight, knighted by his hero. This is like Sansa level disillusionment of the songs, but this time it's with some swords. Yeah, absolutely. This is like. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an apt uh, comparison in sports, and turns out I can't do it. I was like, it's like if um, the swimming guy, I can see his face, can't remember. Phelps. It's like if Phelps was like, you are the best swimmer ever, Eliana, and the answer is I'm not. It's like if the early 2000s Pistons came to my house and were like, do you want to shoot some hoops? And I would say yes. Yeah, it's like that. It's like watching Scooby-Doo as a kid and the Harlem Globetrotters came on and you're like, I can do the ball thing on my arms. For sure. It's like if Serena Williams now was like, hey, you want to hang out? Also, let's play tennis. You are super good at tennis. I'm not super good at tennis. But it'd be like that. But Jamie was actually good at what he does, you know? Yeah, you'd like hit the thing and you'd be like, love, love, bitch. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so back to giving up Casterly Rock. <laughs> A moon's turn after Jamie and Cersei role-playing at the inn, Jamie gets a raven summoning him to become part of the Kingsguard. He's like, wow, 
she really did it. Uh, and he goes and he doesn't he joins the Kingsguard at the tourney at Heron Hall. And then he gets to, and then he misses out on all of the festivities because Lord Ares is like, great, congratulations, you signed your life away. Now go to King's Landing and guard Queen Rayella and Viserys. And then Jamie realizes, oh my god, I was a pawn in an elaborate scheme to make Tywin angry. Yeah, and it worked. The scheme to make Tywin angry worked. But you know what didn't work? the scheme to be with Cersei because Tywin was so mad that he resigned his hand of the king and took Cersei back to Casterly Rock with him. So Jamie's stuck in King's Landing alone, taking a vow of celibacy to sleep with his <laughs> sister. Now he can't do that. Teenage boy, like his life is over. His dick is hard. Yeah, he was thinking with his dick and it all blew up because that's what happens yeah. when you make decisions based on wanting to fuck your sister, I guess. Something this brings to mind, and it's kind of a spicy take. Are you ready for a spicy take so early? Uh, okay. Jamie joining the Kingsguard, to me, is aligned with Sansa betraying Ned hmm. in book one, in that she went to Cersei thinking she was doing the right thing, that she was going to get what she wants, which was being queen, while also bringing glory to her house, right? Mm. And then it turns out that it turned her into a hostage of King's Landing, which is pretty much what happened to Jamie. I think that's absolutely true. And like, so we're going to bring this up a lot throughout this first chapter and maybe throughout many of Jamie's chapters. There are so many people we could have put Jamie's chapter right after. Oh my god, yes. And we tried and thought about all of them, we, trust we me. We did. Like, he would have gone actually great after Sansa's chapters for exactly what you said, right? There's so much of his story that's about the disillusionment of, like, the songs. We could have put him after Theon's, as we'll talk about, but we chose to put him after John's because now we've gone through all those other chapters and can refer back to them. It all made sense in yeah. the head. But it did, it did. Things that don't make sense in the real world or in people's heads, Cersei's plans. Because along with all of this, I mean, here we get, start getting a little early taste, a little early peek at Cersei not being great at long-term plans and <laughs> schemes. Like, that didn't didn't quite work out here. She she really thought she had something. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, Cersei. Yeah. It really is. Well, it turns out that Jamie's new boss is terrible when he gets his new job at the Kingsguard, but, like, really bad like cruel, would burn people and then go assault his wife afterwards. Uh, Gerald Hightower told Jamie not to judge Ares, that it's his job to protect and obey, not to question and also to protect, like protecting Rayella. Jonathan Derry, when Jamie asked whether or not they should be protecting Rayella, was like, yes, but not from him. You know, as we lay it all out like this, I'm starting to realize that it's kind of meaningful that not only does all of this begin to show us, like, Jamie's slow disillusionment as a Kingsguard, but also Jamie's first job, his first role as a Kingsguard was being sent to pr protect Rayella. So that's what he's told from the get-go is what he's supposed to do. We don't really see it in his thoughts, so I assume that he didn't interact with her that much or connect with her. But, I mean, along with the values that he had as a knight, with those oaths that he was he had taken about protecting people, I would kind of wonder if that plays a role in why this moment is so striking for him because 
that was the first thing he was supposed to do. And so he's like, I'm supposed to protect her too, right? And then he gets that very conflicting order of, wait, no, we don't. Because when you join this, you know, this guild, you're thinking that you're bringing glory to your family. You're a king's guard. You are one of the finest knights in the realm who can protect anyone. Your sister from men who she has to marry, like Robert. Your sister. Yeah. um, Cersei from Robert, eventually. Um, Yeah. I mean, your little brother who gets picked on. I kind of wonder, now that you bring that up, like, Tyrion must play a role in that, too, as he realizes not only can he not protect him, he's actively part of what hurts him. Jamie deals with all of this by dissociating uh, when all this terrible stuff happens and by thinking about his sister. And finally, he decides enough is enough during Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, Jamie was actually kind of there when all of this started, if you come back to that whole Ares burning people thing. Uh, he begged Rhaegar to take him into battle with him, and Rhaegar was like, that's cool, but, you know, my dad wants you as a hostage or collateral, and securing your dad's loyalty is chill. But he does promise when he returns that there will be reform, and he asks Jamie to protect his wife, Elia Martell, and their children, Aegon and Rhaenys. Not only does that not happen, uh, very bloody does not happen, he ends up killing King Aerys and his pyromancer that was probably going to be used for destroying the whole city, but no one knows this, except Brienne and a handful of chapters will get there. This is a reread, guys. Yeah, it turns out actually this was a good thing that Jamie did. But afterwards he's like, wow, that was very tiring. I'm very confused about what's going to happen next. I'm going to just climb all these stairs and sit on the really weird chair. Um... It's fine. And then Eddard Stark finds him sitting on the chair, and like any good romantic comedy, there's bad communication, hijinks ensue, and it leads to decades of bad blood between the families. <laughs> That's definitely a way to put Eliana. <laughs> the framing. Anyways, eventually Robert becomes king, he marries Cersei, Jamie is still in the King's Guard, defi- despite Ned being like, but what if he wasn't? And Robert's like, but what if he was? And finally, at long last, Cersei's plan finally, finally comes true and bears fruit. Finally, <laughs> she's in King's Landing as the queen, and he's a King's Guard close to her. And they have three children, Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen. Uh, but it's like Joanna said in the dream that we'll talk about at length eventually. You know, she, they weren't, that's nothing that she planned for them. No, you know, she... he says to her, I'm a knight. And she's just so sad. Like, oh, honey, you sure are a knight. She planned, Ugh. she planned a lot of different things for them. Like maybe different sexual partners. Yes, she did have those plans. And I think her and the unnamed princess of Dorne and uh, their other friends really could have had strong alliances. I mean, imagine if all that shit, if she didn't die, the rebellion may not have happened. That's actually a very, very interesting idea. Uh, I think it's probably been explored by someone like Joanna Lannister on Tumblr. If you guys have ever seen, whoa, her, Joanna Lannister meta. explored. Sorry, <laughs> she is a Tumblr. No, she's a great meta. Yeah, writer, she though. actually you, you, really is. If you haven't checked her out, check her out. Um, but she is like the Lannister go-to. So if I ever need some sort of biblical reference on a Lannister date or like a thing, I just go scroll through her tags and it gets me good, you know? 
While Jamie's not allowed to actually parent these children, Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen, though, for very obvious reasons, he has to keep them at arm or hands length away, and he dissociates completely from them. Cersei wouldn't even let him hold them when they were born. We really see the effect of this as Jamie rides through the Riverlands, and I'm excited to explore more of that when we get to feast. We'll get more of his thoughts on guarding his king and how he should be doing that, Tommen. Yeah, so when Jamie's story isn't a strange retelling of Lancelot and Lady Guinevere, um, <laughs> which it actually a horny retelling, yeah, which like a hornier. They, I don't know. I think Lancelot and Guinevere was pretty horny in and of itself. Jamie and Tyrion kept having a very close relationship. Jamie turns out was a very good older brother, except for the time where he lied to his younger brother about his marriage and said that, oh, your wife is actually a sex worker that I hired and basically destroyed his marriage and his younger brother's sense of self-worth entirely and leads to a sec- horrible bout of sexual violence. Oh, other yeah, than no that, other than that. Good relationship otherwise. Good relationship because Tyrion was like, great older brother, you got me a horse that I greatly treasure for my 23rd birthday. Super meaningful. Very emotional when it dies. Yeah, probably because he didn't get to grieve for Taisha. The horse? No, Tyrion. Yeah. I was also kind of hurt by the horse, I'm not gonna lie. Oh my god. So, years later, Jamie and Cersei are totally still boning. Uh, in secret, of course. Our first glimpse of him by Ned Stark in the main series comes... There came Sir Jamie Lannister with hair as bright as beaten gold. And then a little bit later... Robert had looked at Cersei, and her twin brother Jamie had taken her quietly by the arm, and she said, and she had said no more. With the death of John Aaron, Robert means to name Jamie Warden of the East, which would dramatically increase Lannister military power. They obviously already have the stronghold on the West. So there are many, many reasons why we put Jamie after John. Uh, incredibly large amount of reasons, but we really also consider putting him after Theon. But I think the quote up top is the biggest reason why John and why John and Jamie really mesh. For sure. There's so much that I think, you know, as as Pete points out, there's a lot to tie in with the differences between the Order of the Night's Watch and that of the Kingsguard. Um, but, you know, speaking of the Kingsguard, Jamie, eh, he's just coasting at his job right now. He's loitering around King's Landing when we get back there in Game of Thrones. He wins another tourney celebrating Ned. Uh, he's like, whatever. And then later on, things start getting all dramatic. You know, there's like a war kind of brewing. And then Jamie's like, fuck this peace. Fuck this peace shit. He attacks Ned and kills all of Ned's close men, including Jory. And... Boo! I went... Boo! <laughs> I was supposed to go into this open-minded, but you had to bring that shit up. Sorry. Boo! I'm still open-minded. I actually really like the Jamie chapters. I like Jamie also. Chloe... Chloe's... Meh. I like him as a character. Doesn't mean that he does always the right thing or the good thing, but I like him as a character, and I like his growth. Yeah, I think he's one of the most interesting characters and really embodies i think a lot of what george wanted to explore in a song of ice and fire 
And they start getting that, right, as uh, very, very soon. And they start giving a better summary of the things that happened here since uh, these don't come up within Jamie's chapters. And by a better summary, I mean, we're still going at this very fast. It's still a lightning round. <laughs> um, yes. Jamie flees King's Landing and joins up with Tywin's host after this. And then he partakes in the War of the Five Kings, smashing the Riverland armies, especially at Golden Tooth. He defeats Edmure Tully at River Run and captures him, but in the Battle of the Whispering Wood, Jamie gets captured after furiously trying to cut his way through all of the men to kill Rob Stark. And, you know, he almost succeeds, but he doesn't, which is why you never do that. Don't let your pride take you. Except he almost did it. He almost succeeded. Yeah. Uh, almost. Which, you know, on one hand, like, people are like, hmm, that was dumb. But on the other hand, there is actually a a logic behind this weird really kind of weird dumb hail mary move that jamie's doing right now because like now that we're looking at it in holistically within the rest of his life i kind of get it i'm like of course he thinks this is gonna work because if he did succeed in getting all the way to rob he got all the way up to rob all right he cut through like 20 men and got up to rob and it's because he believes that killing rob is going to end this northern rebellion I mean, Tywin believed it too, for what it's worth. That's why we get the Red Wedding. And, like, Rob isn't crowned yet as a king during during this part. This is still in a Game of Thrones. Jaime has seen firsthand the effects of what happens when you kill the leader of a faction, right? It's why he's called Kingslayer. And, like, that very much played a big role in, well, ending the Loyalist faction. But still, like, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, also, side note, speaking of Jamie's capture in the Whispering Wood, one year, the first year that I ever attended Ice and Fire Con, Scad from Davos Fingers partook in the fan fiction contest. I think I've already plugged this before, but I'm plugging it again. His prompts uh, that he drew out of like the hat or whatever made him ship Rob and Jamie, and he wrote this great great fanfic and it is entitled the whispering wood and i will leave that to your imagination but i think i i it, it's on sweet yft's youtube channel my god please go check that out guys if you can because you will be in for a treat mm -hmm. for a treat a, a whispering treat. wood treat some salami as yeah. a treat. <laughs> anyway, for real though. So Jamie fails and gets captured, as I said, because he goes all out with his pride. And that brings us up to a clash of kings where he's imprisoned most of the book. Tyrion tries to free him and Jamie, for obvious reasons, attempts to escape, but he doesn't. Rob Stark doesn't choose to exchange Jamie for his sisters. And Catelyn ends up interrogating Jamie in the dungeon, learning the truth about Bran and, well... I think they almost fought. There, there's a lot of sexual tension in this dungeon scene for some reason. And I'm going to be real. It's very interesting because Jamie exudes a lot of confidence for a guy who's ever, who's like only ever fucked one woman in his life. And that woman happens to be his family member. Very, very interesting. Uh, he's, I don't know. He's very charming. Very, uh, like, I thought he was, even though he was dirty in those dungeons, he was about to, like, charm the pants off Catelyn, like yeah. a hate fucker. She was like, hmm, dirty. And then I, I'm thinking of that scene in Futurama where, remember, where there's Fry and she's like, dirty boy, dirty boy. Uh, that's the scene. Oh, that's the scene. Okay. Well, this brings us to where we last left Jamie. 
Uh, this is the last place we left him before we get into Jamie in a storm of swords. And that is in Catalan's last chapter in A Clash of Kings. I made no such claim. The Starks were nothing to me, I will say. I think it passing odd that I am loved by one for a kindness I never did and reviled by so many for my finest act. At Robert's coronation, I was made to kneel at the royal feet beside Grand Maester Pycelle and Varys the Eunuch, so that he might forgive us our crimes before he took us into his service. As for your Ned, he should have kissed the hand that slew Ares, but he preferred to scorn the Ars he found sitting on Robert's throne. I think Ned loved Robert better than he lo- better than he ever loved his brother or his father, or even you, my lady. He was never unfaithful to Robert, was he? <laughs> Come, Lady Stark. Don't you find all this terribly amusing? Brienne pushed the door open and stepped inside the cell. You called, my lady. Give me your sword. Catelyn held out her hand. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 7. Such a great end to a chapter, uh, to an arc, to a book's arc even. And something I find really amusing is that in the last book, of course, we know that Brienne and Jamie are uh, kind of a little bit fucked, right? Lady Stoneheart sees them, spoiler, and uh, wants them to choose, wants Brienne to choose between her loyalties, between sword and between hanging. And the word that Brienne calls in the gallows to release them, she yells something. We don't know from the book, but George R.R. R. Martin at MissCon in 2012 said that the word she called for was sword. So the very end of their Clash of Kings run was abbreviated with sword, and the very beginning of their Stoneheart arc, coming round circle, opening back up, starts with sword. And one day we're going to get to Brienne chapters, and I think it, it is heavily implied by the way Brienne is watching Pod, right, begin to struggle for air that she says sword. So in this moment, she finally gets to understand what it means when Jamie has been saying this whole time. So many vows, they make you swear and swear, and what it means to be asked by someone you serve to do something that maybe goes against what you feel is right. Well, before we jump into Jamie 1, I think we're going to have a lot to explore about House Lannister in these chapters. From everything we've talked about in the past however many minutes, you guys can obviously see House Lannister is a little fucked up. They're like only a little pretty Greek tragedy, right? Very much so Greek tragedy. So much like they make the House of Atreus feel a little normal. Like, whether it's the Oedipal factor, dead moms, or the illegitimate baby shit possibly happening, twin cest, there's kind of a separation between some of the whole spicy incest stories of the gods in Greek mythology, in this case, I guess, Targaryens, and the regular folk. But it's obvious, especially from the Lannister pride that we've been talking about, they all think themselves the next best thing. Yeah, you know how some people joke that the Maybe to the Tyrells were like, yeah, their shit don't stink. The Lannisters think that they poop gold. We find out that they don't. That's confirmed in universe. Um, it's a uh, canon. We, the masters of the canon, mm-hmm. can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Along with the House of Atreus vibes, I think that's like a good call. I also kind of have wondered two things. If there's sort of like a follow the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, I, I kind of got that vibe from them also. Like, It's not confirmed in the short story, but it's maybe implied that the two siblings in the house are might have an ancestral relationship. And then the house like falls apart and, and, you know, shows the end of their line. It seems like Mm. Jamie, 
and Cersei might be the end of their line. I kind of also have wondered if Jamie and Cersei, to an extent, is George's exploration of there's there's this story by Robert Heinlein called All You Zombies, um, hmm. in which a person it's a very narcissistic story, literally. Uh, there's time travel involved, um, coming back to Futurama. That's definitely, I think, a little inspired by this story as well literally a narcissistic story and I'll let you all put the pieces together. I think it's all free on the internet for you to read right now. Um, and I, I kind of wonder if like, that's what we see with Jamie and Cersei, especially with Cersei, right? That, that desire to fuck oneself as opposed to just the incest, the less that they come to reflect one another, the less sexually attracted to one another they are the more that they get outside of themselves in a way, or well, the more Jamie s- stops reflecting Cersei. Who knew this is what it took? Yeah, true. Uh, but until then. Well, that brings us to our What We Missed lightning round on Jamie 1 in A Storm of Swords. And the only chapter we missed in A Storm of Swords was the prologue, where Chat tries to turn his cloak, but in the end, he is stopped by Winter. Indeed, because what a surprise, what a banger. You turn you turn that first page after the prologue, you expect you're going to see, like, Arya, Tyrion, Sansa. No, you get Jaime. What? F- now, remember your first time reading these books and not knowing, and you're like, Jaime. Anyway. It was kind of like a fun surprise. It was. I was like, wow. We're sprung from Riverrun by Brienne and Catelyn, Jaime, Brienne, and their cousin Cleos, make their way down the trident, and they meet trouble along the way. An east wind blew through his tangled hair, as soft and fragrant as Cersei's fingers. He could hear birds singing and feel the river moving beneath the boat as the sweep of the oars sent them toward the pale pink dawn. After so long in darkness, the world was so sweet that Jaime Lannister felt dizzy. I'm alive and drunk on sunlight. A laugh burst from his lips, Sudden as a quail flushed from cover. What an opening. It is. Right? It is. He's just so joyous in this moment. Well, you have to have a good open for yeah. your first Jamie chapter. You got to go big. And not only does he go big in bringing it with the pros, but he goes big in bringing it with Brienne of Tarth, who shushes Jamie. And Jamie thinks of her ugly, but yet at the same time, also pretty hot. She's muscular and skilled at swords. He passes the time in the boat thinking of her bod, but in Cersei's gowns. She could row longer and harder than his cousin, Sir Cleos Frey, who is rowing the other oar. As I read Jamie's chapter, I was starting to think of contextualizing him in this moment, especially within the narratives of some of the other like jailbreaks that we've seen in A Song of Ice and Fire, of Theon and Sansa's like escapes. Uh, maybe even Arya, whom we haven't gotten to yet. Um, you know, there's a lot of POVs who escape ca- captivity, so it's interesting how Jamie's feels so comical next to theirs. Very sarcastic and flippant. Uh, his internal monologue, uh, it reads re- more early Theon than it does later Theon. Yeah. Um, much lighter than Sansa's. And for somebody who just spent like a year locked up in shackles. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, he, he's got slightly easy go of it i guess compared to some of them but not entirely i mean being a prisoner doesn't sound great sounds pretty bad as an understatement 
Jamie thinks that Brienne looks like a strong peasant wedge, but speaks like a highborn who wears a long sword and dagger. He plans, once out of the iron manacles Catelyn put on him, to find out. Catelyn Stark had gotten him nice and drunk and suddenly let him free. Escaping Riverrun required some fighting and climbing endless stairs, but finally they set out in a boat. The water gate is lifted at Catelyn's command, and Jamie's life has been traded for new terms. And that's what he remembered as he takes a wine nap, as one does, and here he is, awake. He thinks his brother Tyrion would laugh very much so at the irony of Jamie sleeping through his own escape, and he tries to get Brienne to take his chains off. I also find this comical because Tyrion would not be laughing right now. Literally, Tyrion's last chapters, the end of Clash of Kings, is Blackwater. Oh, that's true. He's getting ready to be captured, but instead um, ends up pretty much hospitalized for a long time. Coming back to the whole, like, escape, escape vibes, right? They all have kind of required assistance in their escape. Here, Jamie has Brienne doing a lot of the work for him. Right, and it, it's kind of interesting, the difference in the agency and desire required to be able to escape. Jamie actually kind of, I think, sets off in a way that chain of events, not chain of events, but like sets off a lot of these. He's one of the first that we see, um, and we don't root for it the same way that we do for Theon and Sansa because it's not set up in the same way. It's it's the start of his storyline. Um, it's another reason that I think he's really interesting, contrasted with Theon's POV. Yeah. There's some really great banter back and forth with Brienne calling Jamie Kingslayer, and he calls her wench in return. She asks if he denies he slew a king, and he asks if she denies what's in her pants. He also asks her to take off her pants and just prove it, which I'm like, damn, just fuck already. No. Just kidding. But then he's like calling her flat-chested, which is less romantic, so I don't know, maybe don't. He could be into that, but also, and he just doesn't know yet, but they're both just trying to get anyone to see them for who they are. They're both just trying to be be called by their names, you know? Yeah, he's got, a, he's got a lot to work out on this road trip, that's all. They've got, they both do, but him especially. Cleos Frey, tell, of all people, is the one to tell Jamie, you know, you should mind your courtesies. And then Jamie launches internally into some thoughts about Cleos's blood. He's like, that's Aunt Jenna's son. She's a cool Lannister, but he's also the son of Emmon Frey. Not a cool Lannister. In fact, not a cool Frey either. He's a wuss. Yeah, no Frey is cool, except for like Olivar. No, there's a, quite a few. There's Olivar. There's like three. Gatehouse Amy. There's Oliver, the, there's Roslyn, there's um, Oliver's brother that I don't remember the name of. I've wrote, I've written a lot about great. a lot of Freys. Fat Walda's great too. <laughs> Bless her. Emin, so Evan Frey, for those of you keeping track at home here, is 12th in line for the twins. But if you recall, he's the one that gets promised River Run, which is a total joke. It's like, hmm, that's <laughs> cute. That's not real. <laughs> Cleos had vowed to deliver Catelyn's message to Tyrion of the new terms, um, and then was promised his release afterwards. And those weren't the only vows exchanged the evening before. There was a wedding. There was not a wedding. I just wanted to say that. She had laid the point of the big wench's sword against his heart and said, Swear that you will never take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honor his pledge to return my daughters safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight. 
on your honor as a Lannister, on your honor as a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. He remembered the prick of the steel through his rags as she twisted the point of the sword. Yeah, it's intense. It's a pretty interesting line, especially in the context of what's probably, I think, one of the most iconic lines from Jamie in the series. Maybe one of the most iconic lines in the whole series uh, that comes from his discussion with Catelyn. It's not, it's not this one. It, it's the same discussion, but it occurs earlier. Um, because we get this in this chapter, and this one comes in Catelyn's chapter. Anyway. So many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king. Obey the king. Keep his secrets. Do his bidding. Your life or his. But obey your father. Love your sister. Protect the innocent. Defend the weak. Respect the gods. Obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. It's interesting. Catelyn heard this whole spiel, and yet her answer was, you know what? Let's make him swear more oaths. Yes. <laughs> She's like, you know what? We'll just make him swear all of these oaths by all of the lives. Therefore, they can't conflict, maybe. Just all of the oaths ever. And I think that's one one of the reasons why we thought Jamie's really interesting after John, right? Like, we all know what the Night's Watch's oaths are. We've said it several times. Everyone else has said it several times. Everyone fucking knows what it is. We never explicitly get the Kingsguard odes within the books. Uh, there's a Westeros board and user who, coincidentally enough, is named Twinslayer. <laughs> and they broke it down. They grabbed a couple of quotes. And what it's come down to is like, protect the king from harm or threat. Provide the same Kingsguard protection to royals, lovers, mistresses, and bastards, but only if so directed. Follow orders from the king, other royals, the hand, and the small councils. Serve the king's pleasure. Keep the king's secrets. Protect the king's name and honor. And maintain chastity. We saw in John's chapters, right, that he pretty much broke every Night's Watch vow in a very kind of backwards way, but he still did it. Even without, you know, kind of meaning to. Jamie, same deal. You know, he's kind of broken every single Kingsguard oath by this point in his life. Especially, you know, the whole, like, most important one to protect your king. And he, he really did it in style. It's not like he failed in defending his king against an assailant. He's like, but what if I, I just did it. I was the assailant. And honestly, he was right. It's, it's pretty pointed that we get those two arguments for him at the beginning of A Game of Thrones, like Ned being wary of him and then John also just projecting goodness onto Jamie because he looks like what he thinks a true knight should be. And then we get the start of Jamie's changing character, right? He's like stripped of his knightly armor. He doesn't have hair anymore in like a second. And that's when we begin to like see him transforming. Yeah, I love that transformation that the Jamie we know in the first couple books before the POV is hardened and dissociative and an asshole uh, because of the society that's molded him that way. But here he is now broken down, not a gold penny to his name, right? Not a goddamn gold dragon to his name. Daddy's gold can't save him right this second. Uh, in fact, hmm. they're lucky they have the girls because that's what's saving him. But... Jamie thinks the High Septon may not regard these oaths very well, since he was dead drunk, chained to a wall at sword point when he was forced to make them. But he also thinks religion's fake, 
and that he thinks about Catelyn Stark kicking over his pail of shit that was in his cell, and he wonders why she would trust a man with shit for honor with her daughters, but realizes she's really trusting Tyrion, not him. He's just the messenger. He thinks out loud, perhaps she is not so stupid after all, but Brienne hears him and thinks he's speaking about her. I can see where she would get that chain of logic. I feel like from this thought pattern he has going back and forth, and I'm pretty sure Stephen Adewell said this actually in one of his essays, but it's obvious here that Jamie has no plan to follow through with anything he said he'd do. Like, it's not even in his radar. He wasn't even planning on it. He didn't even consider doing it. Like, he figures he's just going to go home, somehow get rid of Brienne, you know, somehow drop Cleos off at daycare and go home to his brother <laughs> and his sister and shit's going to go back to normal. He's going to get back to his dad, everything. For sure. Absolutely. And I mean, like, I think that's, I, as I think about these, it's kind of interesting that, like, there were oaths that he meant to keep and he kind of fucked all of them up. These ones he had no intention of keeping. And he's kind of actually ended up very much trying to keep them. Yes, absolutely. Until then... Jamie's like, all right, all right, let me explain. I wasn't talking about you, I was talking to myself. It, it it becomes a habit, you know, when you're just a prisoner for a long time. She's like, uh, okay. So she just says nothing back, and he notes that she seems to be highborn from the way that she holds herself, and tells her as such, and she explains, she gives her own little info dump this time to him, reminding all of us, uh, upon the release of A Storm of Swords in the year 2000, uh, that she is the only daughter of Selwyn Tarth, the Lord of Evenfall. And Jamie is surprised. She's like, so what are you doing serving Rob of House Stark when uh, your house is sworn to Storm's End? He's like, oh, by the way, Tarth is a ghastly large rock in the narrow sea. And she tells him, I don't serve Rob, I serve Lady Catelyn. And Catelyn commanded that we're going to go back to King's Landing. We're not going to banter, so shut the fuck up, or you can go talk to Cleos over there. And that she has, in her words, no words for monsters. Then we get this passage that I think is very telling, where Jamie is kind of laughing at her. Are there monsters hereabouts, hiding beneath the water, perhaps, in that thick of willows, and me without my sword? A man who would violate his own sister, murder his king, and fling an innocent child to his death deserves no other name. And then Jamie thinks, Innocent, the wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Cersei. Their journey north had been one long torment. Seeing her every day, unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse— Tyrion had done his best to keep him in good humor, but it had not been enough. Uh, what's that boy's name? Bradley? <laughs> Bradley. Uh, Braden Stark? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's what he thinks for a second. Um, but I'm sure he yeah, learns well, it eventually once it causes him all that trouble. So I did want to stop on this this uh, quote for a bit. I remember back then when uh, Stephen Adler released his analysis of this chapter and this line had really struck me as I was rereading it. It turns out I had actually highlighted this line. It stands out to me that in all of Jamie's interiority, what we get regarding his justifications for flinging Bran out the window is innocent. The wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Cersei. Right? Like, he doesn't say 
that he flung Bran out the window to save his family. In fact, Cersei chastises him soon after. Um, or we, we learn that Cersei chastises him soon after because it actually, she felt endangered his family. George actually says in, like, in it's chronicled somewhere in a so speak, Martin, that when people have posed the question of why did Jamie fling Bran out the window or, like, what what was the re- rationale behind writing something like that, he's like, well, what would you do if your children were at risk? And I understand that this might be how George explains it to people in his rationale, but I do think it's telling that Jamie's interiority doesn't show that being why he does that to Bran at all. No, and it's not the only time that it comes up. Um, it's often referred to as the Stark boy. Yeah. And uh, it really, it's not coming out that way. It's coming out like you had a boner. Kind of makes it a little more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. it, it makes it more complex that we would, that people might like ascribe or project that uh, beneficial narrative onto Jamie's actions. It seems like George does. And maybe that was what he was thinking, but you know, if we got, if we took word of God right out of it, if we took the author's intent out yeah. of it, this is how it sh- would be read. I also think that it's interesting that in this, in the same moment, we hear that part of what was so frustrating for Jamie was their journey north had been one long torment, seeing her every day, unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse. Right? Like, we know that Cersei did not. Cersei didn't want to have sex with Robert, right? This is marital rape. And yet, Jamie in this moment isn't thinking about Cersei or what she's undergoing, right? Having to endure that under Robert the whole time. And it's interesting that he doesn't really think of it in the context. Yes, it's less violent than what Ares did to Rayella, but I mean, it's still marital rape, same, same as both were. And he doesn't think of what Cersei's going through. He thinks of how it was difficult for him that he couldn't touch her and some other man got to have her and not him. Yeah, that really stuck out to me, this read. Uh, And it really circles back to something that also popped out. I didn't notice it until you read it about how he was made to kneel with Varys and with Maester Pycelle uh, Hmm. to Robert as, you know, to get on his knees in front of the royalty and basically beg for forgiveness from him before he was led on to be King's Guard again for another season. So, I don't know, there's just these little very prideful moments that Jamie has that, you know, he charges at Rob and that's why he was taken prisoner because, you know, he did a very brave Hail Mary move that could have worked, but it didn't, and he suffered for it. Yeah. He very much so is in that perpetual state of 15-year-old boy who had a little taste of glory against the Kingswood, you know? Yeah, he thinks he's the wild card. He's like, I'm going to just play my hand. It's not necessarily, oh, wow, I didn't even mean for that pun to happen. But And he's starting to learn. It doesn't always work. Yeah, and he's like, well, what if I actually did try to play the game? Because, like, obviously he was burned. He tried to play the game once. It didn't work out for him. And he was like, I'm just never going to do it again. You know, now that you just said it, the the part where he was made to kneel with Pycelle and Varys, I'm thinking about it again in the context of Pete's email. All of them, Pycelle and Jamie have taken vows of celibacy. Varys has not, but I mean, it's a well-known fact that he's a, he's a eunuch, so. Vow of celibacy, um, you shall 
father no children except upon your sister. Yep. It's basically like making yourself, right? It's not like weird. It's basically masturbation at that point, right? <laughs> so Jamie tells Brienne off and to watch her mouth about Cersei. And she once more tells him not to call her wench. He asks why she cares what a monster calls her. Hmm. My name is Brienne, she repeated. Dogged as a hound. Lady Brienne? She looked so uncomfortable that Jamie sensed a weakness. Or would Sir Brienne be more to your taste? He laughed. No, I fear not. You can trick out a milk cow and crupper, crinet and, cr- and chamfron, and bard her all in silk, but that doesn't mean you can ride her into battle. It's a fancy colloquialism. Uh, if you guys remember from our last John episodes, we talked about some of the fancy colloquialisms and idioms that came about there, and that was a good one. You know, you can uh, dress her up. Okay, so a while back, Aziz uh, from History of Westeros actually tweeted about it, and it's one of my favorite things. I'm so glad he highlighted it, but my name is Brienne, she repeated, dogged as a hound. Mm-hmm. That, that, like, obviously a nod. Uh, and it's not the only nod to the hound in this entire chapter. We're going to hear a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, Sandor being brought up into this is a great person to compare her to he refuses to be called a knight as a kingsguard and rejects knighthood and its values but he's actually the closest to practicing knighthood's values brienne is unable to be a true knight in the current climate because of the current reign's gender norms in westeros and the employ she finds herself in as well uh renly obviously was a different camp than joining up with the old king joffrey baratheon mm-hmm and it's a bit different, like Jean-Quil Dark under Alisan is a much different allegory. It was a much different time. Jaehaerys and Alisan were very much so building, while Cersei is trying to help control over Joffrey with Tywin, and it's a very awful, horrendous reign. Uh, and Jean-Quil Dark is very much so an analog to Brienne, right? Like, this is another sandbox mm-hmm. thing George was playing with, especially under Catelyn or Sansa in the future. I think it's there to tell us that it can happen if it happens under the correct rule. And I very much so think that Lady Brienne and Sir Brienne will come to be in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But it will take the right rulers to do so. Sandor will likely also die a true knight. Uh, Both of these characters suffer cruelties as children. Both of the cruelties revolve around their, quote, monstrous looks, unquote, Sandor's being actual monstrous looks given to him from his brother and flame. Brienne's really just the cruelty of boys. Throw in a few spare remarks we'll hear as we go along, like grave dicking and knights beating children, and Sandor reminders are aplenty here, and on purpose, as we know what happens further to Brienne, the hound helm, and of course her face. Now, I want to put this out as a precursor. Yes, these are Jamie chapters. But we will obviously be covering a lot of Brienne. Never fear, you'll get a good break before Brienne. No no spoilers on our POV order, but you will get a little break before we go to Brienne. So this will all feel new again someday. But there is some Sandor in Jamie as well. And Sandor being prominent and thematic in this chapter kind of makes sense. They both became children's soldiers out of necessity and survival in a way. Uh, Jamie became a pawn of the game with his father being played by Ares and Cersei playing with him. Sandor also had to join up into the Lannister army in a totally different rank. 
Joffrey kind of really looks up to Sandor. He, he looks up a little to Jamie too, right? But doesn't really have a relationship, a real relationship with either of them. And as you said, yes, we're going to talk about Brienne a lot. I mean, you kind of can't, you can't not. Yeah. She's like such a big part of the next few chapters. She's in many ways a catalyst uh, for much of what happens in Jamie's story. But it's a good thing that she gets her own too. I mean, Jamie would have been boring, honestly, to just read him with no Brienne changing him. Um, she affected his life. And added sexual tension again. And we love sexual tension not from your sister. I actually do. This is true. <laughs> but let's talk about Jamie's cousin, Cleos. He says once more that Jamie should watch his words. And you know what? We shouldn't quarrel with such a long trip ahead of us, right? We're in a cramped van, car... All right, I don't know when we're going to get there. And Jamie says, okay, fine. I won't fight, all right, but I get to hold the map. And if I'm going to quarrel, I'm going to do it with a sword. Then he notes Cleos <laughs> is wearing a surcoat, quartered with both the Frey and Lannister sigils beneath his cloak. That's so funny. He's really trying to front. Yeah, he's like, hmm. He's trying to, he's trying to hedge all his bets here. Not working yeah. great. He starts to instigate a bit more with Brienne, asking if, is every woman on Tarth as ugly as you? And then he pities the men that live on that pitiful mountain in the water. And Brienne's like, shut the fuck up, Sapphire, is, Sapphire Isle is beautiful. It is, probably. And if you don't shut it, I'm going to gag you. And Jamie Kinky. internally is like, yes. And no, I'm joking. But <laughs> Jamie's like, please there. top me. That's the only way I get off. Just ask Cersei. Um, you're kind of blonde if I squint. Jamie decides to grant her wish of him speaking to Cleos instead of her, asking if Cleos thinks Brienne is rather rude. He commends Brienne, though, on having a spine and says, ah, yes, well, she did call me a monster to my face, cuz, instead of behind my back, like most men do. He legitimately respects this. He actually does. He's like, thank God someone's got... <laughs> He's like, you know, she's got some, uh, some moxie. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Cleo says that Lady Stark must have spread lies to Brienne. The Starks couldn't beat him at swords, so they had to spread lies about him instead, even though they're truths, not lies, and the Starks also beat him at swords. For those keeping count at home, just want to make sure the scoreboard's out there. Yeah, Jamie is keeping count. He's like, no, they beat me at swords, you idiot. That's why we were prisoners. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, if we were winning, do you think I would be a prisoner? Yeah, he's like, excuse me, Cleos. But also, this mm. is this is actually, in fact, a Lannister tactic. They could not beat the Starks at swords, so they said they used lies and ravens and trickery at the red wedding yes Ugh. it's true though uh, they, did. Jamie, they did they couldn't have won otherwise uh, yeah they couldn't jamie gives a knowing smile wondering like is cleos gonna finally fucking get it and he's like is cleos sucking up to me is he trying to ingratiate himself and me or is he actually just like this why are you like this uh, and Cleos goes on to say, Any man who'd believe that a sworn brother of the Kingsguard would harm a child does not know the meaning of honor. Ooh, boy. Yeah. Later on... Boy, do I not want you to read A Clash of Kings. I know. Later on, Jamie's gonna be like, I know the meaning of honor. It's a horse. One day we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> um, seriously, though, Sansa 1, Clash of Kings. 
Shall we go? Sir Aerys offered his arm, and she let him lead her from her chambers. If she must have one of the king's guard dogging her steps, Sansa preferred it be him. Sir Boros was short-tempered, Sir Marin cold, and Sir Mandon's strange dead eyes made her uneasy, while Sir Preston treated her like a lackwit. Aerys Oakheart was courteous and would talk to her cordially. Once he even objected when Joffrey commanded him to hit her. He did hit her in the end, but not hard as Sir Marin or Sir Boros might have, and at least he had argued. The others obeyed without question, except for the Hound, but Joff never asked the Hound to punish her. He used the other five for that. Uh, just wanted a reminder that the Kingsguard would never hit innocent children. Never. Never, Cleos Frey. Not all of them. Yeah. In varying degrees, many times. With full chainmail gloves. No. Okay. Or swords. Jamie at least didn't do that, right? He he didn't hit Bran. He <laughs> threw him out the window. Yeah, and so the next line in this is that he came to regret throwing Bran out of the window, but mostly because Cersei wouldn't quit nagging him. That that actually is how he feels. That is legitimately how he feels. I didn't write the book, so you can't be mad at me. Yeah. Guys. Um It, it is yeah, Cersei actually is the one who shows concern here for a bit. At first, um you kind of wonder, like, is she does she feel bad because she points out Bran was seven, we could have told him, frightened him into silence, done something else. Uh, but turns out maybe she was actually just concerned about, like, what if he wakes up and remembers? That was the bigger concern. And Jamie just pulled her into his lap, telling her, you know what, we're gonna lie about it. Alright, we're gonna tell him if that happens that you were dreaming. And if it came to that, like, then I'll just kill Ned Stark. It's fine. I'll go to war with Robert if I have to. It's fine. And he thinks, like, the war for Cersei's cunt, that's what the singers are gonna call it. Yeah, and that, of course, she tries to squeal out of his grasp, and then he kisses her and holds her close, and at first she resists, but then she gives in, and he rips her clothing off of her, and they forget all about Braden Stark. Braden Stark. Bradford Stark. Bradley Stark. Uh, he wonders if Cersei had remembered Bran after all of the orgasms and sent the cat's paw after Bran, and he's like, I don't think she did it because she would have sent me to do it. <laughs> and the assassin royally forked up. They move along the river, and there's rotting tree banks and rocky bluffs, and Jamie spies a watchtower ahead. I love this imagery here. Long before they were upon it, he knew that it stood abandoned, its weathered stones overgrown with climbing roses. It's pretty prose, but it reminds me of a couple things. At first, it makes me think of the Tyrells Same. climbing roses, right? But when I think deeper, it really does remind me of the tourney at Harrenhal and the False Spring. And, I mean, Lyanna and Rhaegar likely would have come right through this area, right? Mm -hmm. Dashing through on horseback. To me, it symbolizes that dead, dying youth. The roses overgrown, the tower demolished. Nauticaps covered Arya Six in A Clash of Kings this week, and they talked a lot on how war shapes a place, and the people that believe Aerys II was a better ruler than the current regime, who obviously do not know that Aerys planned to roast the entire Earth, uh, and all the plots that lead to, from, or through Harrenhal, it all seems to have this nostalgic feeling. Almost like riding your horse into a different time period. 
And the scenery here feels like that as well. There's heavy forestation, wide water, but abandoned holdfasts and a lack of people. All of the people have died and gone, and now the Riverlands is basically nothing but the ghosts of war. The North isn't the only place you find zombies. This is where the dead live. Uh, Emmett said in Nauticast's last episode, Ares is the standard by which all of the horrific abuses of power in A Song of Ice and Fire are set, and yet here we have the people telling us they miss him, they're nostalgic for him. As Jamie and Brienne and Cleos race toward Harrenhal, well, maybe not so much for Cleos, right? Uh, the ghosts come more and more alive for Jamie. We begin to get more and more into that mindset and trauma of 15 and 16-year-old Jamie and the horrors that he saw, and it all finally bubbles over when he gets to the bathhouse. You know what, what What strikes me about the way that some of this scene looks also is it's a lot of scenery that we're going to see revisited in Brienne's own chapters later when she does her own quest throughout Westeros um, and sees a lot of the other aftermath of the horrors of the war. Um, it, it's interesting that throughout all this, Jamie doesn't really think, what if all of this is my fault? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually, but that would mean he'd have to take some accountability. That doesn't come until, like, at least three to four chapters from now. Uh, maybe later, but yes. Yeah, the wind shifts, <laughs> the wind shifts, and Cleos helps set the blue and red striped Tully canvas into the air so that they can sail faster. Uh, makes them a lot more likely to be noticed. They would likely have to fight if they met Lannister forces, or... If they even met Tully forces, really everyone's an enemy right now. But it was all they had. Brienne takes the rudder and they start to make some good speed. Jamie says, you know, we could travel far less if instead we went to my father's house instead of Tyrion's. But Brienne's like, no, the whole point of this is that I'm going to come back with the Stark sisters. Brienne's like, all right, all right, all right. Cleos, lend me your knife. It's going to be fine. And Brienne's like, no! Jamie's like, it's fine. Okay, fine. Cleos, give me a shave. Leave the beard, though. And he realizes in that moment that Brienne fears him, even while he's restrained. He wants to pass unnoticed, a bald man with a filthy beard instead of the Kingslayer with luscious locks. But the luscious locks aren't really that luscious right now. Cleos is cutting them out. They're matted. Lice is coming out with them. Jamie douses his head in water, and then Cleos shaves off the last bits of stubble. Jamie looks at his reflection, and he doesn't know it. He looks five years older, thinner, hollowed eyes, wrinkles. He thinks that he doesn't look like Cersei much now, and that she'll be unhappy about that, which we kind of mentioned up top, but uh, Cersei obviously sees people and things as extensions of herself. And that might be where this relationship happens. And then starts to go south. Jamie thinks, like, oh, Cleos is actually, like, really good at shaving. Fascinatingly, this is a thought we get. Um, and again, I've said it several times, we could have done Jamie right after Theon, right? Like, along with the imprisonment, suddenly he finds himself looking at... at his own reflection and realizes he looks a lot older, thinner, right? He looks like he's aged so much. Uh, his hair even changes, same as Theon's does. And I, I've i written um, an essay before chronicling how hair kind of signals change within characters throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, it's true in real life, too. And I think I spoke about it back then when we did Sansa's chapters. 
you know, people do that. Sometimes they're like, I need a change in my life. They get their hair cut. Jamie does that right now. Uh, the way we've done this order, now we can refer to both Theon and John, whatever. And like with Theon's chapters, along with the change in appearance post-imprisonment um, and the changing of the characters, it, it starts to really happen around rivers, right? For Theon, it was crossing that one river once more to, to kill the Miller's boys. Here with Jamie, it's a lot slower. He's traveling this river and begins like thinking about it himself. He's within the Riverlands itself, a place that's kind of an in-between when it comes to all of the different kingdoms. It's his own like Rubicon, but also uh, I think of another line from Heraclitus of no man ever steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Jamie began this process of change at Riverrun so I think it's quite notable that he is going to return to Riverrun uh, and the Riverlands in Feast, and he's going to be a very different man in many ways. And also the Riverlands is going to be quite different too. It'll have changed hands and leadership. The way that he leaves the Riverlands when we see him last there, he was trying to almost set up a little bit of foundation, right? A little bit of infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, right some wrongs, deal with some hostage situations and see if they could get the Riverlands back to functioning. So, yes, he's still working for the mob at that point, which is his family, even though his dad's dead. So it's like, why are you still working for your family? Um, but he's still, you know, pumping that Lannister name out there. But he, he has to keep the king's peace, right? And that's what he tried to do. So back on the skiff... Cleos falls asleep midday, and Jamie takes this time to appreciate his semi-freedom. He stretches out to watch trees and shacks and rocks pass by the boat. Birds fly overhead, silver fish swim in the water. But he thinks that's a bad omen, because they're totally trout. But the omens just seem to get worse, because they pass dead men swollen in the water in Lannister Crimson. He wonders if he knew the man. Back when there was no war, the Trident would have been way busier with merchants and fishermen and barges, all taking up vacancy on the fort, but not now. They pass empty villages, empty nets, people who run when they see the sight of a sail, pass burnt tower houses, people watch from afar, waiting to make sure the skiff that's passing is not an enemy. Brienne seems to catch any dangers that threaten to throw their skiff over, and Jamie compliments her on this, sincerely. She regards him pretty suspiciously, saying she doesn't really know the rivers. She learned oars and sails at Tarth, though, before she could ride. And then it looks like it might rain, and Jamie welcomes that. He's like, man, I haven't had a shower in a long time. We don't really have showers, but I kind of get the idea of it when it comes from the sky. Uh, first, though, they smell and see smoke in the distance. They float closer, uh, seeing smoking remains of a building in an oak full of that is uh, full of dead sex workers because once upon a time it was a brothel. Brienne says this was not chivalry, chivalrously done and that no true knight would condone such wanton butchery. True knights see worse every time they ride to war, wench, said Jamie, and do worse, yes. Brienne turned the rudder toward the shore. I'll leave no innocence to be food for crows. A heartless wench. Crows need to eat as well. Stay to the river and leave the dead alone, woman. So, in this line, we get a sense of who Jamie is in this moment, right? He's not trying to, he's not trying to rock the boat. He's just like, but what about let's let's just have the status quo? He's like, the world needs to keep turning the way that it is anyway. 
he never got rewarded for doing the right thing, so why would he keep doing it? Yeah, exactly. He was condemned for it, so why Actually, would he do yes, it? yes, true. And every time that he thought about doing the right thing, he was told, no, don't do that. So they land the skiff upstream by the oak. Jamie climbs clumsily to the shore, rinsing himself off in the water. The women hang with a sign on one of the corpses that reads, they lay with lions. And then Jamie, Jamie smiles at this because not only was this unchivalrously done, it was done by Brienne's side, allegedly. She said she serves Lady Catelyn. Anyway, uh, this is a reread, so we already know how jaded Jamie is. He counters Brienne's ideas of true knighthood with, you know, their own sins, right? Knowing them firsthand, you know, being a knight and all. And he tells Brienne that this was done by her side. You know, she's like, again, no, because what he's trying to do is get her to be as jaded as he is. He's trying to tear the veil off and change her in that horror, right? And the way that it was for him, right? He's trying to turn her into into him, right? We see the hound do this with Sansa too, in a way. And for Jamie, he realized that the fairy tales and legends of knighthood were alive when they started to become unattainable for him. But I think that the difference for Brienne is like, they were always unattainable for her. The gender norms of Westeros told her, well, you can't be the beautiful princess. You also can't be the knight. And she's just like, well, I'm just going to try to do the best that I can. And that's something that's going to uh, really resonate with Jamie later on. In a way, Brienne has every bit of the ferocity that Cersei has, but she is completely the inversion, right? Uh, Cersei grew up knowing that she couldn't have those things and because of it she lashed out and she internalized all of that misogyny and Brienne took those things internalized them and wanted to do better wanted to do something good and to be good yeah and it's something that he hates in Ned Stark as well right because he thinks that Ned Stark also has a sullied honor in his own way He's he asks by what right does the wolf judge the lion and he doesn't like it, many characters right that's why they love the narrative that Ned fathered a bastard because they don't like the idea that someone could fail and keep trying to do better. Cleos recognizes this inn as some of his men had found comfort there when they last were at River Run. Nothing remained of the building but the black stone foundation and a tangle of collapsed beams, charred black. Smoke still rose from the ashes. Jamie left brothels and whores to his brother Tyrion. Cersei was the only woman he had ever wanted. Jamie remarks they earned their traitor's collars by kissing and serving the Lord Father's, his Lord Father's men, and that they're on Bracken land. Jonos Bracken had his castle burnt by Tywin, and he would have no love for Lannisters. Really good nod, especially since Jamie has to treat with Jonos Bracken hmm. later on. True. Also, another thing that I'm thinking of in Brienne's storyline with the they lay with lions, or like they love Lannister men, I mean... We don't know that Brienne and Jamie will sleep together in the books. I hope that they will. I mean, I think, I think that they should. I think it's been pretty prophesied before the bad show it even happened. It kind of already okay? happens, right? Like in Jamie 3, but it's. I, I want it to happen. I desperately do. And. I mean, it's literally going to use that same oh, language. Oh, that would be so good. I'd be so happy. Anyway, but it. it, it she, 
right? She She's trying to honor these women, right? And quite frankly, she might be one of those who would have been branded as they lay with lions. Throwing it out there. Absolutely. And I do think coming back to that idea of the last word being sword with Cattle and Tully uh, in the last chapter they were all in together. And of course, the last chapter that comes up with all of them again in the end of the series here of what we have published. I think there's another nod right here that this very first chapter of the Jamie and Brienne show moving on the road starts with hanged people, Mm, right? Hanged Lannister uh, quote-unquote Lannister supporters or Lannister sympathizers or people that obviously were really just trying just to trying make to, their money. They were just trying to make a living. They really were, probably. Just getting a buck or two. Yeah. Um, that's definitely... That's a, that's a good connection. But for now, Cleos thinks that, you know what? It could be Mark Piper who did this or maybe Beric Dondarrion. It wasn't Beric Dondarrion. He thinks it could be Bolton's <laughs> Northman. Um, Cleos comments that except Beric only kills soldiers, but I mean, may- yeah, maybe it'll be Beric's men later on once you know they're taken over by Lady Stoneheart. Whatever, later on, Jamie says his father defeated Bolton though, and Cleos is like, yeah, he was taken but not broken. Bolton came back, right? And he commands now at Harrenhal, and Jamie's like, mm, I don't really like that. I don't like the sound of that at all. Yeah, and from here, this guides us to Harrenhal, right? We were always going to Harrenhal. That foreboding mention of Bolton controlling the keep starts here, and Harrenhal is where Jamie's life died. Day zero, he's crowned a Kingsguard member and whisked away to his own tower, so to say, unable to compete, guarding Rayala and her son. Um, I don't think the princess in the tower trope is alone there, right? We can add Jamie to it, Kingsguard in the tower. Yeah. Uh, that's such a... I mean, we do have a Gerald Hightower, first of all. Um, but I think that's such a good point, that Hall is a place of great significance in Jamie's life. Yeah, now that he's going there and has to face his old ghosts, and he does, right? I mean, the bear pit is a very big, uh, it's a big moment for him. That is a moment that shows a bunch of growth, yeah. and it's... Truly some really chivalrous romanticism. It's beautiful. It's, you know, you swoon when you read it, okay? It's just not? gorgeous. It's a he gorgeous He jumps scene. back into uh, the bear so pit. So he did. Injured. So oh, okay. he did. It's his... Uh, so... Well, we'll get back to back it. We'll to get back modern. to it. Oh, my God. We're never doing this podcast ever. I mean, how are we going to get through all day? Yeah, we're all just like, but chapters. this thing that happens in two chapters, let's talk about it now. <laughs> He warns Brienne, the Trident and King's Road are really likely to be watched at this point, and she's not bothered. She tells him they would have to go through her to get to him, and he grants her the courtesy of her name during this exchange, hoping that she might actually listen to him. When Jamie questions how in- intimidating she would be on the King's Road, she defends herself, saying she was one of Renly's chosen seven in the Rainbow Guard. Really good thing to lead with, though, honestly. Yeah. She's like, I'm just as good as you. And he mocks her, saying, So you're likely one of seven girls in Rudley's guard. And he goes, A singer once said that all maids are fair and silk. But he never met you, did he? Damn, what the fuck? Yeah, it's kind of rude. Yeah, I'm so glad the love of my life tells me I'm a sow in silk all the time. It's interesting that he mocks Renly's Kingsguard, considering that, what, later on, Jamie's like, you know who I kind of see a little bit of, like, my younger self in? 
Laura's Tyrell. Yes. <laughs> you know, Jamie's nagging Brienne. She turns red, tells him, <laughs> we have graves to dig, okay? Interesting. Grave digger. I, Interesting. Yes. Again, brings us right back to Sandor, right? Uh, the grave digger lowered his head. When Dog went to sniff him, he dropped his spade and scratched his ear. So Sandor as the gravedigger was very much so set up, even back here. And of course, this easily brings our mind to Sandor and Brienne's likely shared ancestor, Dunk the Lunk, Duncan the Tall, another Kingsguard oh. member, who we first meet digging a grave. He laid him out on the bottom of the grave and stood over him for a time. The smell of rain was in the air again, and he knew he ought to fill that hole before the rain broke. But it was hard to throw dirt down on that tired oh. old face, the hedge knight. Another great hedge knight nod here, since we've discussed many times before, but George wrote these books practically neck and neck next to each other, and the themes are so very apparent. The tree that the tavern women are tied to is a giant oak. Oak and iron guard me well, or else I'm dead and doomed to hell. I think Brienne burying these dead women, even though she doesn't know them, um, especially as they were harmed for doing their jobs and surviving, is so important, and... We really get to see the three characterizations of these characters in this scene. Cleos thinks that burying these dead women is a waste of time and they're not worth it because they're sex workers. Jamie, as we know, is very blasé. He does not care. He would not have wasted his time with it. Uh, he knows someone else could have done that. And Brienne does it because men and women's lives have meaning and letting their deaths be displayed like this is pretty atrocious and disrespectful. Yeah, she does because she's like, it's the right thing to do. As you said, atrocious and disrespectful. And for trying to do the right thing, it almost happens to her. Brienne climbs the oak tree to cut down the women, while, of course, Cleus complains. But when she gets to the top, she shouts down and she's like, Oh, shit! Uh, she spotted a sail on the water coming to them. They hurry, shoving off, and Brienne commands Cleos to row as well. And then we get a chase scene. Too fast, too furious. On the river. Yeah, Jamie's chained up. All he can do is try to see the sails, mud-red, watery blue sails that are following them. They spend a good hour, the other boat tailing them, sometimes visible, sometimes not. And Jamie notes that it's a river galley with 18 men rowing. There is no way for them to outrow this one. He's already done the math and split up the people. Six to Jamie, six to Cleo, six to Brienne. Jamie would have taken eight, but he hints that his chains are hindering him, and Brienne ignores that hint. She's busy rowing to get them out of this mess while Jamie talks Cleos down, saying that these people are going to be exhausted, they had a long night, and they've likely only rested two rowers at a time. They only have this small burst of we-see-the-enemy energy, but Jamie thinks they're going to be tired and they'll be able to kill some. But then he also thinks the best they can hope for is to die with swords in their hands. Of course he does. I do want to correct myself briefly. It wouldn't be like too fast, too furious, because the earlier Furi Fast and Furious movies were about racing. The later ones were more about heists and chases, so this would be one of the later ones. Anyway. Um, I would like to argue that the Fast and Furious series is actually more about a family. Wow. Even if it's not a blood no, family. You're right. Thank you. And maybe Fast and Furious are the friends we made along the way. It actually is. We have a quote here of, he was perfectly sincere. Jamie Lannister had never been afraid of death. Brienne broke off rowing. Sweat had stuck strands of her flax-colored hair to her forehead, and her grimace made her look homelier than ever. 
You are under my protection, she said, her voice so thick with anger that it was almost a growl. <laughs> he had to laugh at such fierceness. She's the hound with teats, he thought, or would be if she had any teats to speak of. Stop looking. Then protect me, wench, or free me to protect myself. So there we have our next Sandor reference, moving past that. There's so many peppered in here, that, like, in this, like, first chapter. Yep. I know. I love it. Very interesting. Um, and again, Jamie, in the context of Brianna, describing Jamie's background, looking at it now as it's all been laid out now in this, like, lightning round, you know, he's supposed to be a protector, right? It's literally his job. Literally the thing he's supposed to do as a knight. So I, I find it quite pointed that in his disgraced state right now, Suddenly, instead of being the protector, he's the one who has to be protected. There's that very very much reversal. And I mean, he's not innocent. He's not worthy of this protection. And yet, Brienne is doing her best to do so in a way that Jamie failed to do. He was unable to do and in many ways was disallowed from doing in the past. The boat is furiously gaining on them and Jamie sees men with crossbows on the deck and he thinks... He hated archers. A stocky, bald man with a green weeping willow embroidered on his surcoat and the silver trout of River Run fastening his cloak stands at the prow of the ships. Once a great fighter, Sir Robin Riger's fighting days were long over. Kind of funny coincidence here that uh, Tyrion killed his dad with a crossbow, huh? And Jamie hates mm. archers? Just putting that out there. Yeah. Funny line. Yeah. Uh, I think Jamie, of course, hates archers for cowardice, right? Uh, he prefers to kill a man when they're facing you. But <laughs> uh, late medieval England was really fond of archers because inexpensive, easy quantity they could raise for armies, and kings tended to keep a strong guard of them on their personal guard. The Master of Crossbows was a prestigious position in France for a prominent time period, and shooting and shooting guilds kind of rose up very often. They were a common way to build potential soldiers. So Jamie, yes, hates these archers for the cowardice, that you should kill a man face-to-face -face or in intimate combat, so really, this is probably more self-reflection on his own cowardice regarding Ares and Rayella, but I like the added subtext that the archers were a prestigious but glorified position in his eyes, and that they were also assholes for not having to do the up-close work like he's had to do. Jamie calls out to Robin, to Robin Riger, when the boats are within 50 feet of each other, asking him if he had, have you come to wish me Godspeed? And then they banter words, and he negs Robin this time, and Riger calls for them to abandon their arms in the water, and no one will be harmed. And then Jamie's like, and he's also like, what happened? to your hair and Jamie's like well I had this plan I was going to blind people with my baldness and as he says that all I can think about is Krillin from Dragon Ball Z like this was literally one of his signature moves <laughs> it was always a very exciting for me whenever he did it I was like yes Krillin Krillin's my man See, and now that makes me think of uh that makes me think of Caillou oh interesting i don't think of caillou very often i don't think about caillou What's the at all other anime guy that looks like grown-up caillou one punch man yes hmm. there you go did they come out with i yes. think the second season i haven't watched the second season yet um and i don't follow the manga i haven't watched any um it's fun it's a fun you should watch it it's a funny anime i've heard good things yeah. i have cleos tells 
Jamie to use Catelyn Stark as their excuse. But Rhaegar says, you know what? She doesn't rule in River Runner, right? So go put your weapons in the water. And Jamie's like, well, I have no sword. But if I did, I'd stick it through your belly and hack the balls off those four cravens. Is this helping? Uh, is this not? This is not helping, Jamie. Yeah, he knows. I mean, what does he have to lose? At it's this just point, yelling you out know? the car window. It's you know he doesn't really have a hand to wave with. Um, oh my gosh! Just kidding. He has two for now. Jamie is answered by a flight of arrows that barely miss him. They pierce the boat instead. Brienne is busy driving the boat as they meet another bed, and she commands Cleos to take the tiller, Jamie to take an oar to keep them away from the rocks. Jamie watches Brienne's eyes, and he thinks they're pretty and calm. She's not afraid, and she's not desperate. She's determined. I love this back and forth of Jamie, thinking and saying that she's ugly or that he hates her, but then within the same, like, heartbeat, his actions or a secondary thought seem to betray that. We're going to see this a lot more as we get to the end of the chapter, and every single week, I think, uh, going forward, we'll yeah. see this more. <sighs> I love this trope in shoujo manga. <laughs> <laughs> also not a joke uh, they round a corner a brief break from the arrows and Jamie pushes them off of a half submerged boulder which then causes Brienne to fall into the water and then she's gone but then she pulls herself up no. at the base of the rocky bluffs because would you believe that Brienne might be a strong swimmer having grown up on Sapphire Isle <sighs> the Sapphire Isle she's a strong something she's like freaking strong woman she's in this so scene um, Cleos is paying more attention to her than the water, and Jamie's like, come on, Cleos, get with it, get with it, Brienne can catch up later. Uh, the large galley can also catch up, because it's catching up to them now. Brienne is climbing up the cliff face, and Jamie realizes Sir Ryger is going to be able to see Brienne and command her shot by those archers. So, Jamie shoots his shot, and he sees if he can rile up Ryger's pride a little more, and he challenges him to one-on-one -on -one combat and he's like i'll still be in chains and riger refuses he's like nope i'm commanded to bring you back alive if i can and he tells his archers to get ready to notch draw and loose their bows and arrow their he commands his archers to notch draw and loose but they miss loosing a boulder that tumbles down onto their boat tears their sail breaks in two sends two archers to the river cripples an oarsman and the galley begins to fill with water extremely fast and off Jamie and Cleo's fuck to get Brienne from the clifftop. This is a this is a really interesting way to adapt the plot of Mulan to Jamie's storyline. <laughs> Jamie thinks that the gods are good after all, as they leave the galley struggling in the waters, thinking that, you know, it really couldn't have been planned better. He's like, now we're gonna lose Brienne and Riger's crew in one good motion. And then Brienne gracefully, like, dives off of the clifftop, and he can't help but admire that form. Olympic, Olympic 10 out of 10 uh, toward their place in the water. And he thinks, man, you know, with one good swing of the orb, we're going to be able to get rid of her. And yet, instead, <laughs> instead... It's not supposed to be funny, but I it think is. it is supposed to be funny. You know, there's a lot in Jamie's like interiority that's like just as funny and witty as Tyrion. Oh yes. You can absolutely. see how they like they probably like exchange like barbs all the time. Um but you know, instead of hitting Brienne with the oar, he's like, But what if I pulled her back <laughs> what on? 
with it. And he doesn't even think about it, though. Yeah. Within the same beat of him thinking, I'll be able to get rid of Brienne, he instinctively offers the ore to bring her up. And I think actions speak louder than words here. Jamie shows that throughout the entire chapter and book. His split wants and loyalties are so very strong. He wants to grow. And he's finally had his first taste of freedom uh, from the life he was kind of stuck in in many ways. But he chooses his family and Cersei first, time and time and again. But what if, what if he chose Jamie first? Like, what would happen in that alternate universe? Well, the struggle between those two ideas is what we're going to explore moving forward. Yeah. And also the rivals to lovers romantic trope yes and beauty and the beast all the worlds colliding but for now we close the chapter as he helped her into the skiff water ran from her hair and dripped from her sodden clothing to pool on the deck she's even uglier wet who would have thought it possible you're a bloody stupid wench she told her we could have sailed on without you i suppose you expect me to thank you I want none of your thanks, Kingslayer. I swore an oath to bring you safe to King's Landing. And you actually mean to keep it? Jamie gave her his brightest smile. Now there's a wonder. Oath keeper? Question mark? I strongly... This is good? This is good? I strongly believe that. Uh, it's probably not true, but Oathkeeper the Keyblade is a reference to this. I think I so. I want to. I, I hope want so. To believe. Oh my god. I want to believe in the heart of the cards. Oh, wait, 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 no, no but there different. is cards in, um, what is it? Chain of Memories. That's true. And, I mean, there's totally blue eyes, blue dragon. Oh my god. Um, so, yeah, that's our first Jamie episode. It, it is. And, like, it ends with Jamie once more pondering... The idea of keeping vows, and that's literally like how this chapter very much starts as he reflects on the vows that he made to Catelyn Stark, and he has no intent to keep them, but he's like, wow, I guess I guess Brienne does. I love that their first chapter ends yeah, on her saying she swore an oath. Ugh, chilling stuff. Um, there's a lot of really great parallels to the past chapters, to Catelyn, to Brienne uh, in the future, in this chapter, this chapter, like, as a first chapter of the book, not yeah. counting the prologue, is a very strong chapter to start it off, a very different chapter, and I think George made the right decision putting it Absolutely. there. Absolutely. It, it sends you for a loop in many different ways. You're like, wow, we're getting into the head of the guy who, like, set off, set in motion all of these events, and you suddenly start to realize... I, I mean, Jamie's just such a, a well-constructed exploration for George, right? And not to mention, we're seeing the Riverlands through someone's eyes that didn't mm, grow up that's there. That's true, too. It's it's someone... He spent a lot of time there, but as you said, not, like, yes, native. Well, next week, we are going to be doing Chapter 2, Jamie yeah. 2, In a Storm of Swords. I am very, very excited about that one. I'm more excited about Jamie's third chapter, but we'll talk about that next week. A lot of the things that we've discussed about Jamie's past, we're going to revisit in much more detail next chapter. So that'll be very interesting. I think, you know, what's cool about some of these older characters, right? We did a lot of the young characters, but with Barrison and Jamie, you get a lot of the... He's like 
30-something, right? You get a lot of flashbacks because they've lived a lot of Mm -hmm. life prior to this moment. Yeah, it makes up for getting these late character additions, right? You get Sansa and Bran and Arya and Jon and Danny from the very start, uh, but you don't get Jamie, and that's okay because you know he has a rich history. The way George weaves in finally giving him a voice and giving us that view into his world is brilliant. Yeah, and and for a lot of the young characters, it's their initial preconceptions of the world being challenged, and I think for the older characters, it's unlearning things and trying to relearn new things it, it's it's a different there there's ways obviously in which they connect people are always growing and learning if they want to and we find jamie suddenly for the first time in his life in a very long time wanting to and it's 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 a hell of a ride We're on this river of life yes. together <laughs> just around the river bend <laughs> is robin riger so make sure you guys are subscribed to us on social media if you want to shout out something about the episode or talk about jamie lannister or talk about anything a song of ice and fire shoot us a tweet or a direct message over at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n or girls gone canon at gmail.com yes and of course i mean here we are we have just started jamie lannister but we're gonna have a lot of other episodes come out soon too uh things are gonna get a little mixed up this february but stay tuned subscribe to us on sorry subscribe to us on all the podcast platforms you can find us on stitcher on acast on google play on apple what is it called whatever i'm gonna fucking call it itunes it's fucking itunes um spotify those are the big ones there's other ones that we're on i forgot Oh, Podbean. Podbean's a big one. It's where we host all these things. And of course, we could not bring you these episodes every week without our wonderful patrons who support us in many, many ways. And also fiscally, if you want to be a patron, you can pledge to us. $5 and up patrons actually get specially crafted episodes every single month. Uh, Last month was an episode on the Maiden Vault in A Song of Ice and Fire and this month, we are about to announce in the next week or two, so stay tuned for that information. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>